Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, the podcast. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. Season two begins today. I hope you had an opportunity to listen to at least one episode from season one. I trust that you will listen again and recommend this podcast to one other person today. I have had the pleasure of meeting and staying connected to many adoptee allies in the community over the last decade. Some of these individuals are birth parents. They have searched for the children they relinquished at birth and found them. What impresses me the most is their willingness to help other birth parents and adoptees be in reunion. In this episode, you will hear from Melissa Mitchell. We met in the autumn of 2011 as many adoptees like myself, born after 1945, were preparing to request our original birth certificate. In the following year, she helped me to find my maternal birth family. I have referred several adoptees to Militia at the White Oak Foundation over the years, and she has gladly assisted them in the best way to make that first contact with their birth family. She is an expert searcher, and I often consider her a detective from another world. If you have been listening to other episodes of this podcast, then you know her name gets mentioned a lot because she has helped so many adoptees. Militia's bio is quite hefty with accomplishments, having lived in Paris for two decades, then New York, and now in Chicago. I consider her one of the most quick-witted people I know and a relentless advocate for adoption reform. I introduce to you one of the two people who fought 14 years to have the adoption law changed in Illinois that now allows adoptees a right to request their OBC. So before we have a conversation, Militia, about your journey as a first mom, do you, do you like first mom, birth mom, original mom? What do you prefer with language? I prefer the legal term birth mom. Okay. I'd rather stick with the legal definition. Let's chat about how we met in November of 2011 at a small party on the north side of Chicago. And it was an exciting time. Tell me how you played a part in creating a most wonderful time in history for adoptees like me, born in a state that has denied us the right to a simple piece of paper, original birth certificate. Well, how much time do we have, Jennifer? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just go with it. (laughs) Yes, indeed. When I was 20 years old, I had had a daughter. 1967, height of the, you know, baby boom generation, all getting into trouble and surrendering their children to adoption because if their boyfriend didn't want to get married, that was really the only option they had left. My daughter was born and adopted in Illinois. And one day my second husband brought home a copy of The Village Voice, 
And on the back of the Village Voice, and for many years, there was this ad. I think it might have been Joe Siegel in New York who ran this ad. I'm not sure who it was. But the ad said something like, are you my mother? Call this number. Well, I didn't think I was whoever placed the ad's mother. But when I saw the ad, I thought, well, this is a place to start my search. I can start here. So I called. And this guy with this really rough, not at all inspiring confidence voice is like, so where was this adoption? And I'm like, uh, Illinois, Illinois. Oh, Illinois. Very, very difficult, difficult. Illinois. <laughs> He's like, and that's going to be $5,000. Oh, God. $5,000. I sure do not have $5,000. And so I kind of let it go. That was 19. So that was probably the beginning of 1992. Three years went by. And of course, I did nothing because I was convinced that searching was out of my reach. Five thousand dollars. I just didn't have that kind of money. Three years went by. And very sadly, um, after a trip to Africa, my daughter got malaria and died in the space of like 10 days. Hmm. Sorry. And one of my very first thoughts was, oh, my gosh, you know, now I've done it. Now she'll never even know she had this sister because I have not progressed on this search. Even though I wasn't searching, I was still thinking about it. I decided immediately that I would tell her surviving sister I had in my marriage. I had two daughters and I had three sons. The sons all still had a sister, but the sister didn't have the sister, surviving sister, didn't have a sister anymore. And so I set up a meeting with her in a cafe, and I looked her in the eyes, and I'm like, at this point, this is maybe three days after my daughter's funeral, so we are both, you know, sort of still in the sobbing 10 to 20 times a day stage. And my daughter is sobbing at the table and wiping her eyes, and I look at her, and I'm like, okay, Tiffany, You've lost a sister, but you have another sister. And she's like, she immediately stopped crying and wiped her eyes. And she goes, where? And I'm like, well, that's the tricky part. I don't know where, but I've heard on TV shows that there are people out there searching. And that's what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this money that, from the inheritance and I'm going to search for your sister. And it sort of became our project. But in the meantime, um, my mother had had a very serious stroke, and we were now living together, and I had power of attorney. And I went to my mother, and I said, Mom, and I didn't feel like she could handle the search, so I wasn't going to tell her what I was going to do. I said, Mom, I need to borrow some money, and I can't tell you how much, and I can't tell you what it's for, and I can't tell you when I'll pay you back. And she she just looked at me and in her, in her diminished post-stroke state said, did you do something bad, honey? <laughs> had <laughs> she known talking. that, had she known about? Yes. Okay. My mother knew, had taken me actually to the cradle, had gotten the name of the cradle through her gynecologist. So yes, my mother seen my parents even while I was staying out in Evanston with the cradle. So, yes, my mother knew, but I just felt that, you know, after her stroke, she'd been so diminished that she just couldn't handle the excitement of the search, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 
And uh, so I didn't tell her really until um, until I not only knew that the outcome, but I, I just didn't tell her. So in any event, I decide that I'm going to, the first thing I have to do is buy a computer, which I did. Then I get on the internet, seeking daughter, born 6567 in Evanston, Illinois, help <laughs> or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the next morning I had, 45 responses. Mm. And I, I like to joke, it was just like when I was on the dating sites, I used the same triage system. The people who couldn't spell <laughs> I eliminated their, their email. <laughs> and um, I ended up with a genealogist who was in California, but who had a copy of the Illinois Birth Index and said she could help birth mothers. She would use her copy of the birth index. She would look at the date of birth and look for births that had been amended of the of a child of the right sex and race on that day. And if there was a small number, then she would be able to easily resolve the search. I really want to cover so much with you. Yes. How long mm-hmm. was it before you made contact. The searcher had recommended that I go to the cradle for help because she said, maybe you'll get something in the non-identifying information, which the cradle was providing to birth parents back then. The law wasn't doing that, but the cradle was. So I went to the cradle and I paid them $500. Now I paid 500 to the searcher and 500 to the cradle. We're up to a thousand. After a month, all I got from the cradle was some background information that ended up being completely false. Absolutely nothing. So after like uh, two months, the searcher in California, genealogist, comes back and she's like, you know, I don't know why I'm having such a trouble with this Hutchison person, but I can't really find her. Of course, we didn't know that even her phone was listed under a misspelled name at that point. And she's like, I recently met somebody. If you give them the name and place of birth, et cetera, they work at Social Security. It's another $50. But they can find the Social Security number. And that usually is very helpful. I'm like, oh, what's another $50? Go for it. Within 15 minutes of having that Social Security number, we knew where she was. We knew who she was. We knew everything. It was amazing. After four months. So the next thing that happened is I'm like, now what do I do? I found her. How do I initiate contact? And my first thought was, well, I'm not going to pick up the phone and call her because all you're going to get from a phone call is a knee-jerk reaction. I'll write her a letter. Well, I'm a writer. And the letter ended up being 67 pages long. Your letter to her? Yes. (laughs) 67 pages handwritten? No, tight. So that's even longer. That's even it's, longer. It's you are it, you are definitely a writer. <laughs> okay. But my thought was, if she doesn't want contact, I'm going to give her everything she needs in this letter. Right. Family medical history. I'm going to give her the whole story of how I met her father, the relationship we had, why it went awry or why we didn't walk down the aisle together. I will give her all of that information in this letter so that even if she is in a place where she doesn't want a reunion, she will have the information she needs. 
That is so thoughtful and intentional. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> yes. I sent her a bunch of pictures, not only of me, but of her siblings and me mm. uh, and husband, just to give her an idea of who we all were. There were three envelopes. So the first was the 67-page letter. The second was the pictures. And the first one said, open me first. It was just a, a card that said, you know, I believe you are my birth daughter. And if, you know, the information here matches the information you have, there's a long letter in envelope two, and there are pictures in envelope three. Because at this point, I had searched long enough to know all of the possible outcomes. And whatever that adoptee, however she was going to react, I wanted to show respect for that. Mm -hmm. If she just wanted her information but didn't want contact, I let her do that. Were you 100% sure she was your daughter? Yes, I was. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I was. And that's because she was adopted in New Jersey. And I knew that the cradle did a lot of adoptions on the East Coast. Three days went by, and I get a FedEx envelope from her. I'm like, oh, my goodness. She's sending everything back. I can't believe this. But in fact, she wasn't. She had just actually gotten a creative writing degree at NYU. And she had sent a 15-page letter <laughs> in response. Typed. <laughs> Typed. <laughs> so not as wordy as her birth mom, but <laughs> the apple had not fallen too far from that tree. Right. At some point in 1992, we lived a block from each other in New York City. Mm. One block. For for uh, all of three days, I moved into an apartment three days before she moved out of one, one block apart. Wow. We actually worked in um, Manhattan two blocks apart. The last uh, six months, I was in New York. We went into the same deli every day for our breakfast. So Whatever. you all crossed paths, no doubt. We know we went we were walking through Grand Central Station every morning at the exact same time. Mm. You know, it was just unbelievable. But most interesting of all, in September of 1989, she had, in fact, the month before written to the cradle. She got a letter back from the cradle that gave her some non-identifying information, which was actually a little bit more accurate than the non-identifying I paid five hundred dollars for the very last uh sentence in that um letter from the cradle was something like this since your birth neither of your birth parents has any expressed any interest in your well-being therefore this is the only information we possess i was angry when i found out that she had contacted the cradle what the search was in 96, six and a half years earlier. And yet they still couldn't find my daughter, even though they had an address from six years earlier. Which anybody doing searching can tell you that if you've got an address at six years old, you can find that person in five minutes. I was furious. I was absolutely furious. And I thought, 
what is going on here? Something is going on in the world of post-adoption services that is not right. I had met on the Internet people who had been scammed by some of the searchers probably who wrote to me, (laughs) you know, pretended that for I I met a woman, for example, who would paid fifteen hundred dollars to have an actor flown from Los Angeles to pretend to be her birth son for a weekend. That's what she paid fifteen hundred dollars for. Another birth mother who paid fifteen hundred dollars just for a name, just for the name of her daughter through a a person like the person who eventually um, helped me. But they were charging fifteen hundred dollars for a name. And I'm like, boy, somebody's got to do something about that. This is out of control. And it has given birth to a world of fraud and scams. And even the adoption agencies are involved. Yeah. Because they are taking people's money, promising to be a search. And I, I know I've mentioned the cradle here, but in fact, they were all doing it. Catholic charities, uh, Lutheran social services, taking people's money, promising to do a search, dragging their feet on the search. And if the person really drove them mad by calling every other week, like any progress, maybe they would farm out that search to somebody who could actually solve it. Hmm. Is, and, is that why, or is that what prompted you to start the, your foundation? Well, the next thing that happened is I, I had found my daughter. And now she wanted to find her birth father. No problem. I know where his mother lives. I'll give her a call. They, the birth father's sister and mother, you know, really wanted to meet their granddaughter and niece. And we did. And we all became great friends. But when I asked them what had happened to the birth father, I learned that they had not heard from him since I had become pregnant. Mm. Time they had never heard from their son in like forty years. Well, more like thirty years. Okay, no, okay, okay. Thirty years, not one word. They gave me his social security number, his date of birth, everything you would need to find someone in five minutes, and I gave all this information to the searcher. What happened to this guy? I, I mean, I knew he had a law degree, had graduated from the University of Minnesota. But other than that, just like no trace of him on the Internet or even at this point, And this was in 1996. Without knowing it, everybody was on the Internet. <laughs> you know, they were all there somewhere. And so it was very strange that he was not. My background is in journalism, which is kind of, you know, close to inve- and often involves investigating. Mm-hmm. I'm like. I am going to find this guy. This guy is hiding for I don't know what reason, and I am going to find this guy. It was you know, sort of like this box that I looked at from every single angle, trying to figure out the way to figure out what had happened to him. So his family had no idea why he would just stay away. He, they knew he was not happy with them, that he had differences with them. But oh, aside okay. from yeah, that just seems. Yeah, that's. It's, those were some serious differences to stay away that mm-hmm. long. Like they hadn't heard a peep out of him, is what you're saying. Yeah, well, to, to be quite honest, the whole family was a little unique. Okay, <laughs> okay. 
so basically I am trying to look at this search from every angle possible. And I'm like, okay, the guy was a lawyer. He got his law degree. This is all we know. Maybe he pleaded a case. And if he pleaded a case, it should be on LexisNexis, which is a very famous database, a very well-known database of legal cases. And I immediately knew when I saw this newspaper clipping that he was the person I was looking for. But I realized that I had in my search for him unearthed a lot of tools that I could use to help other people search. And I started going around to support group meetings. And I had a wonderful reunion with my daughter. I didn't feel like I needed support, but I wanted to offer search assistance to other adoptees and birth parents who might not be able to pay the exorbitant rates that searches were charging, which was then from 500 to $5,000. And I went to a support group meeting where I, as I had done previously, announced that I was pretty good at searching. I found a guy who tried very hard to hide himself from the world and almost succeeded if it hadn't been for me. And then I really felt I could find anybody at this point and offered to help people search for free. If there were any out-of-pocket expenses, they could reimburse me. But I felt so strongly about helping people make this connection and so angry that there are so many obstacles that have been placed in people's way from the adoption agencies, these, sorry, the adoption agencies that were defrauding people to the scammers that were out there trying to take advantage of the desire to search. It was just, I just felt like somebody had to do something. And after one of these support group meetings, the leader of the support group came up to me and she's like, um, you can't say that in my, uh, my group meeting. I'm like, I can't say what? You can't be telling people you're going to search for free. And I'm like, well, why not? She said, well, because we we've got a searcher who charges $550, and mm. we get a dollar kickback, and that pays our phone bills. How are we going to pay our phone bill if everybody goes to you? Where, where else in the world of problems mm. are the support groups part of perpetuating the problem? Oh, it's it. it's uh, all members of the constellation. Yes, wow. very famous group out in that met out at Lutheran General Hospital, and she added at the end, "If you really want to help adoptees, I hear there's a piece of legislation that's going to be introduced in Springfield to give all adoptees their birth certificates." Now, in tell like me two- what year this is when she this tells is you that. The beginning of 1996, my daughter. Died in 1995. I found my birth daughter in 1996. So the very beginning of 1997. Okay. I think, okay, I don't know about this, all the birth certificates right now business. I (laughs) see so many problems in the uh, adoption, post-adoption on the post-adoption landscape. I don't even know where to begin. But if you want to begin there, that's okay with me. But this will be a way to maybe get in touch with somebody and let them know what's going on, what I had discovered. And so I got down to Springfield and I have written a speech. I think it's like the times of Abraham Lincoln and uh, Gettysburg Address. You know, I've written this (laughs) (laughs) 
but I think it's an amazing speech. You know, any law that profits only the very rich can't be a fair law. Any law that, you know, goes on and on and on. And I was the first person they had to speak. And if you've ever been in Springfield, you know, usually you get like a minute. Well, I went on for like 10 minutes. (laughs) Certainly made a spectacle of myself. But after that, they wouldn't let anyone else speak for longer than a minute. Right. We had people on our side, the same side I was on, getting up and saying, every birth mother wants to find her child. I'm like, well, I know that's not true based on all the research I've done on the Internet, you know, and people I've encountered. I can't say that's the case. Mm-hmm. Then you social workers and the adoption agencies and the lawyers getting up saying none of these birth mothers want to be found. They asked for, they asked for uh, anonymity. And I'm like, well, that's not true <laughs> either. Right. Right. And of the representative finding holes. And she's like, well, what did you think? And I'm like, everybody's lying, which we now know is exactly how politics works. But seriously, it was like, Everybody's lying and making up numbers. So let's let's go back real quick. Sarah, yeah. when did you meet Sarah? Five, five I, notes. That day when I went to Springfield to get that crazy speech. Oh, in, okay. In 97. Okay. The bail failed miserably. And then a couple of us were willing to compromise it. And while it has paid off for a state like New York because they eventually got what they want, you know, not every state can be like New York. Louisiana is never going to be like New York. But Louisiana adoptees need information. And at at the moment, they have zero information under the law in Louisiana. Back to our story, people involved in this original bill wanted no part of it. Compromise was not in their vocabulary. We came up with a draft of uh, a compromise that I will tell you was very similar to the bill that was passed in 2010, had very, very few differences with what eventually passed. But that was 2010, and this is 1997, so 13 years before. And um, so at the end, that bill failed as well, of course. As the next legislative season approached, Sarah said, well, are we going to present a bill this year? What, What should we do? Because she and I had begun working together. We had also started, I had also started a not-for-profit that was, at you know, for pretty much free, helping adoptees and birth parents search in Illinois, Illinois adoptees and birth parents. So we had started the White Oak Foundation. And my job involved one part, drafting legislation, finding out, you know, what kind of changes we could reasonably make in the law and in the other helping people search and kind of doing this long-term research to see what the real answers were. I want, you know, all of these people who testified saying nobody wants to search and everybody wants to search. What was the real answer? In any event, Sarah said, so this is 1998. What are we going to do for legislation this year? And I'm like, you know what? Remember last year, the... The Bar Association presented a a bill that was kind of like to get people's eyes off our bill. Like we have this much better bill that would simply make these small changes to the confidential intermediary program. I think they were very dishonest in presenting that bill. Let's file their bill. 
and see what happens. And in fact, what I had predicted is exactly what happened. The Bar Association killed their own bill. Then the following year, Sarah said, okay, what are we going to do this year? And I said, let's start small. Actually, if I could backtrack two seconds, what had happened is in the fall of 19, yes, in the fall of 1998, the president of the American Adoption Congress had asked me to continue a research project they had already started on adoption registries. And the idea was to show how useless adoption registries were. But as I worked on this project, it came, I, I came to realize that adoption registries could be helpful. And at the time, the prevailing thinking in the adoption community was everyone should go to, forget the name of it, there was a registry in, um, I believe it was in Utah, where they were registering adoptees and birth parents from all over the country who wanted to reconnect. It was a huge registry and they did a lot of good. The problem was that when they were dealing with a place like Chicago, Illinois, and and the fact that sometimes adoptees didn't know the hospital they were born in, so the birth mother would put one hospital, but the adoptee would put a hospital where they weren't born. The um, that uh, national registry out of Utah was making false matches, and I knew this for a fact because I had a client who had been matched through them and had had a five-year relationship with a woman who, after DNA testing, turned out to not be her birth mother. This doesn't have to be. This doesn't have to be because on the state level, we could, we could match the birth certificate, the original and the amended, and not make this mistake. This does not have to happen. So you can see that all of these experiences that I had searching for the birth father, learning how to, they all sort of contributed to, to what happened next. In 1999, we presented a bill that was very simple, but made every change I could think of to the Illinois Adoption Registry to make it more user-friendly and helpful to adoptees. If it existed already, let's make it the best in the country. It had an $80 registration fee at the time. Let's make it zero. It had restrictions for birth parents. Take away those restrictions. You know, the entire adoption reform community thought it was the worst thing they'd ever seen. But what they didn't know is that part of our strategy was to find out who the real enemies were. Who were the people who were going to be opposing whatever we did, even if it was something as vanilla as fixing up the adoption registry. And I think that that bill was a very important turning point because it showed the adopted parents who were kind of a little lost in this whole debate. You know, what did they really want? The attorneys were supposed to be representing them. They were thinking they were representing the birth parents who didn't want contact, but quickly learning that wasn't always the case. And now when you sort of have this... um, obvious act of bad faith by the attorneys opposing a bill that they had no grounds at all to be opposing, uh, started a shift. And uh, four years later in 2003, we passed a bill that completely reformed the state CI program. And then in 2000, I want to say it was 2007, 2008, is when we filed the first version of the bill that finally became the Illinois 
law to open birth records in this state for pretty much all adoptees, 99.9% of adoptees in Illinois. Basically, the bill we in 2008, I believe we filed the very same bill that we filed in 2010. It did not pass in 2008. In 2009, uh, Representative Feigenholz, our sponsor, ran for Congress. She unfortunately lost. But uh, the good news was that in 2010, she agreed to file the bill again. And it passed, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so where we met, where this conversation started, <laughs> was one of the many ways that we used to promote the bill and promote the change in the law. Mm-hmm. What we had, our compromise, and there were quite a few compromises in the bill, but one of the... <clears throat> compromises was to open records for every adoptee born before anybody even thought about sealing adoption records in 1940 in the state of Illinois. Our argument was those records had never been sealed until they were sealed retroactively. Therefore, there can't be any birth parent confidentiality. So every and and in fact, those cases were, of course, the most urgent. And in fact, in the, at that point, 15 years that I had been searching, they were often the cases that were the most difficult to solve because there was no background information taken by the agency. There was no breadcrumb path at all. It just seemed logical that the people who were oldest and in most urgent need of medical background information should get a head start. And so from 20, May of 2010, when the bill was passed, until um, November of 2011. Is that right? I think that's correct. Or was it November? When did you get your birth certificate, Jennifer? So I applied for it in 2011 in November, and it came like the beginning of right. 2012. Yeah. So that was that was when it was opened up for the post-1940 crowd in November of 2011. Yeah. It was like opening the floodgates. Mm-hmm. Before most a lot of those adoptees had somehow gotten copies of their birth certificates or had some information. I had, you know, the cases you couldn't solve were all from that period. But so were many cases that had been solved because there were, for example, the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin until 1962 published a quick resume of every single adoption case. Petition of Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so to adopt baby boy or baby girl so-and-so. But once uh, 2011 came around, November of 2011, we picked National Adoption Awareness Month for the uh, final opening of records here in Illinois. The floodgates opened up and we, you know, not only all the people I'd been helping for 15 years at that point, but been unable to resolve their searches came forward. But we met wonderful people like yourself (laughs) in our PR stunt to get as many people as possible to fill out the application form that we brought with some ceremony to Springfield mm-hmm. on the first day that records were open for Illinois adoptees. Yeah, it All- was a momentous occasion. And fast forward to the party I had opening my original yes. birth certificate. And I remember, oh, that party was wonderful to have so many people from the community to support me uh, and um and I know you were there and I know you once having my birth mother's name went to work 
I think you emailed me that night and was wondering why isn't she responding to me? Because I didn't expect it to happen that fast. You know that it's true. I think, well, that is how I kind of, you, you can imagine how much I love that job for the yeah. many years at it. Um, I had such a passion for it that it was very hard for me to have basic information like we had from your birth certificate. The minute I got home, I think I was working on it. And it was, um, was it Upshaw? What was your... Yeah, Wanda Upshaw. And I remember the next day, you were like, I think you called me. You're like, why aren't you responding to... I sent you an email like last night because the party was over like, say, 5 p.m. or something. And I Uh really just put it to rest, you know, for the day. I did, I just... I didn't check emails or anything. So when you called me that next day, I said, oh, my goodness, you fa-. you're like, yes, I found I found out she has passed. But let's keep going. Yeah. And um, and so I think I would be in reunion less than a week, maybe we'll say a week and a half later, because you were giving me information of what what to check places to check where, where you were getting the Upshaw name. And I'm thinking of uh, an adoptee that was at my party. And he had no intentions of searching. He he came he, as he put it. He came to support me at this party. You know, just mm-hmm. with coworkers and at the time. And and he's an adoptee. And I'm you know he said yeah I'll be there. I don't know how he kind of had a change of heart, but long story short, I remember him saying that he believed he had found his birth mother, and I immediately thought of you because. And I'll let you explain why that's important, how you proceed forward once you think you've yeah. found someone. Well, the first thing I want to say is that I think there's a, a huge difference for an adoptee to, in the abstract, say, eh, I don't want to search. If they don't have access to information, what does want, What good does wanting to search do them in the first place? That's you know what point. I mean? Yes, yes. Once the records are open... It's a whole different ball game because now it's now you really do have a choice to make. The whole idea of an open records bill is not to reunite every adoptee with their birth parents because not every adoptee wants to do that. Mm-hmm. Not every birth parent is able to do that for one reason or another or wants to do that in some cases. But every adoptee wants information. And so it is very easy to go from wanting information, getting that information, seeing that information, being somewhat reassured by that information and deciding, well, now I'll take the next step. Because mm-hmm. that human nature is to say, well, I don't want to search, but okay, now I can get information. But to just always want to take things to the next step once you've reached a certain stage to say, okay, I think I'm ready to do the next thing. That's a good point you make. Yeah. Once you get, so once he got his birth certificate. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was in itself life changing. Yeah. And we found his birth mother, she was single. And and I'd like to add that he was African-American. His birth mother was African-American as a teacher, a school teacher in uh, Georgia. In my work with the White Oak Foundation, being a birth mother, having encountered so many birth mothers and knowing what a crapshoot it is when you are contacting a birth parent. Our philosophy was to put as many chances as possible in the court of the person requesting contact. 
And we felt that the way to do that was to, for the adoptee to maybe not write so much to the birth parent, much as say something like, um, I think you're my birth mother. And if you are, I'd love to meet or get to know you better. Just keep it light. And then there would send a picture or two, just as I had done with my birth daughter, just not a 67-page letter. <laughs> and then I would write a cover letter. And this was particularly important when we were contacting birth mothers, because I would mention that I was a birth mother and that I had walked in their shoes and knew exactly how they felt. And for them to feel completely free to call me and talk to me. I knew from my own experience that talking to social workers, for example, is a maddening experience for a birth parent. Because, in fact, I've never met a social worker who was a birth mother. Mm. But I workers who had a whole bunch of ideas about what birth mothers thought and wanted, which they got out of books, not from going through the experience, but out of books. The idea that a birth mother could speak to another birth mother about this experience would have its appeal, particularly in a very closeted birth mother. And that was the case for Jeremiah. When his birth mother called me, she said, you are the only human being I have ever talked to about this. Mm. So you actually she, talked to his mom. She she took the advice that I gave her in the Wow, I didn't know that. You can call me. Feel free to call me at any time. Mm-hmm. He did. And we talked. We must have talked for an hour. Wow, time. I didn't know that. She, if I did, I forgot. Yeah. I told her what a wonder I had the opportunity to tell her what a wonderful son she had, what a, you know, incredible life he had had. So let me just be clear. She had not responded to him yet. First thing she did was to call me. To call you. Oh, that gives me chills. And that that is not the only case where a birth mother did that. I would say certainly upwards of uh, one third of the birth mothers that I located on behalf of adoptees contacted me first. Mm, I did not know that, Melissa. Mm-hmm. The option that we gave them to talk to a fellow birth mother who'd gone through the same experience wasn't going to judge them because they'd been through the same experience. Exactly. Very important in many, many of our reunions. So you were able to give her confidence to, to move forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I just knew a little bit, I, you know, that right. I think she hadn't told anybody and she just wanted an opportunity <laughs> to tell everybody first. Right. Yeah. And she was not unique in this. Now, you know, Meant to Be, which was the audio drama that's on episode <clears throat> two and three. Have you had a chance to listen to it? I did. I listened to part one and part two. Tell me <laughs> what you think. Uh, I think it's, uh, I do a lot of work with the Goodman Theater here in Chicago with storytelling and and that sort of thing. And I think it's a really well done presentation of your story. I mean, I I love the mix of narration and um, acting. Mm -hmm. Of course, very strange um, to hear someone being me who really didn't sound like me, although their words certainly were mine or could have been mine. But I thought it was very effectively done, Jennifer. I really did. I was quite impressed. 
Well, thank you. I, I want to tell you a little backstory on your character. I had about 11 actors initially, mm-hmm. and I had a white woman portraying you. She had, she's from Nashville, and she had oh, a Southern accent, And but I was Sorry, fine yeah. with that. I was fine with yeah. that. And, um, and then she just disappeared, basically. <laughs> I'm just going to keep it real. She just stopped. <laughs> yeah, she just stopped. And so... You know how you can come up across these obstacles. It's almost like the, a force is trying to shut you down. And I was like, I'm and not going to be shut down. <laughs> I'm not going to be shut down. And you know what, Jennifer? Searching is a lot like that. Mm. You know, go back to some of what we were saying earlier. I think a lot of adoptees, when they encounter that first obstacle, sure, there are many who just give up and say, okay, it wasn't meant to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. There are many there are many adoptees. Oh, this you're going to make this difficult? Fine. I'm up to the challenge. Nothing's going to stop me now. Yeah. And that was pretty much my position in 2010. Right around mm-hmm. 20, 2009, 2010, before I even knew about a new law coming. Well, like, I what, didn't even know anything about that. For what, what year had you found out you were adopted? So I've always known. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I've always known. But the thing is, my, my adoptive mom, more so than my dad, really didn't want me to search. There, there were like three separate occasions that I vividly remember mentioning my birth mother and mm-hmm. wanting to wanting to know who she was. And each time it's like, why do you want to do that? Like, yeah. So it shut me mm-hmm. down. And it would be eight years after my, my mother passed that I would say, you know what, enough already. You know, like mm-hmm. like eight years. I'm living life. A lot is going on. That occupied my time. But, of course. yeah, it was like 2009. I remember talking to my son and saying, you know, I want to do this, and I, I really want your support. Well, I, I remember asking him how did he feel about it. And he was really mm-hmm. close to my mother. So mm-hmm. part of him was being protective. I think much like she was. That's how I choose to look at it. She was just being protective Uh, but then after I explained to him how important it was he just got on board I was not going to be shut down when I got started and it was like everything was just kind of lining up where well you know Illinois I remember calling uh, downstate to Springfield asking questions well you know Illinois is going to change their law and you get your original birth certificate and I'm like oh yeah there is an original (laughs) birth certificate right it was crazy like a lot of people talk about being in the fog. It was like I realized, man, there's so much I don't know that I don't know. There is an original birth record. You're kidding. Yes. Right, right. Birth mother's name on it. It's got your original name on it. Yeah. And even there. like an adoption decree. Like I was like, yeah, like I've been I've been a police officer for many years <laughs> and knew about these, you know, documents. And I'm thinking, yeah, there had to be a, something in court, you know, filed about this incident that took place in 66 and or mm-hmm. 60, yeah it was finalized in 67 but yeah it was really something it felt it felt like the doors were swinging open left and right about things i had no knowledge of the chicago child care society fortunately was still open and they had post adoption <laughs> files and it was like oh my goodness so now we're in 2012 and and having the party and now I'm so close to to being in reunion and all of that unfolds. 
I probably said I have good news and bad news. You did. You did. Yeah. And simply say, I've located your birth mother and she's deceased. Whenever that happened, I would always, before I would contact that adoptee, make every effort to find a relative. I remember you saying exactly that, good news and Mm. bad news. And and I've said, because I've done some interviews or conversations for podcasts, and I've, I've said, I just knew from the things I had read, I had done a lot of reading, a lot of reading prior to mm-hmm. meeting you. I had, right. And actually, I had started probably in 09 at the beginning, and I was feverishly reading. I was renting books out of the library. I was buying books. And I kept seeing this information that you may not find your birth mother alive. So I kind of had that seed planted in, in my head before you were to tell mm-hmm. me what you had learn. It was like I had made peace with that in a sense because I realized it was bigger than her too. I wanted to know other people. I wanted to know if I had siblings, if if I had nieces and nephews. You know, like I wanted especially that next generation and even first cousins. Like I wanted to know about everybody. So while right. I would have liked to have been in reunion with my birth mom, it was it was kind of bigger than just her. Right, right. When you said, you know, the bad news, I I knew that the good news is let's keep going. Like I just, because I remember you saying, I believe you said, you know, so you should go get a death certificate, get as many documents about her. Yeah. And in a case like that, when the birth parent is deceased, it is, very uh, helpful to have that original birth certificate with that person's signature on it. It, Because even if the relative didn't know about the adoption and is going to come back with something like, oh, my sister would never have done that, or my daughter certainly isn't the person you're looking for. Seeing that signature on that birth certificate seals the deal oh that's a good point i hadn't thought of that yeah one of the really important parts of the birth certificate for me is that which not all birth parents sign the signature sign the birth document sometimes their parents signed it in the case of uh crittenden and peoria it was always an attending nurse that signed it because they weren't even putting the birth mother's names for Mm. a period of time yeah. And I feel it's what I, if we could go back to legislative and things of that nature for a second. One of the things that the Illinois bill was most criticized for was the fact that it gave birth parents an opt out during their lifetime. They would have to provide us with a social security number and a date of birth and enough information that we could quickly ascertain if they were living or deceased, and if they were deceased, release that birth certificate to the adoptee, which is how the law is written. And that was, you know, what made this, you know, I was asked, I was removed from the American Adoption Congress for supporting this bill, for having written, drafted this bill uh, over this opt-out provision. Let's talk about that year for a minute. You were removed from the AAC? Absolutely. The day that that bill passed out of the Senate, 
I received uh, apparently a letter at home, but there was they also sent me a letter via email. I remember coming out of the hearing. The bill had passed out of committee in the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, and we knew it was going to be a shoe-through in the Senate. No, I, actually, I think it was the day that it had passed in the Senate. And I remember we were standing in back of the Senate chambers. Just It was just me and Sarah and a lobbyist who had helped us and Sarah's, what did, what did he call himself, chief of staff, I think he was. Stephen, Stephen, yeah. And the four of us were standing in back of the Senate chambers, and I got an email from the AAC removing me as their state representative over this bill. Mm, because they and, felt they didn't like the bill? The opinion then by people who didn't know much about legislation and how the legislative process works, the opinion was either we get what they call a clean bill or nothing or we walk away. But that is what is killing the adoption reform movement. When you walk away, people who have invested one, two, three years into uh, adoption reform, everybody walks away and you have to start all over again from scratch. Mm-hmm. I who have to go down to the state capitol and get to know their legislators and who is for and who is against. I mean, as it is, legislators change every two years. You've got a new crop of people that you've got to figure out where do they stand on this issue and can you count on their vote? I'm glad you shared that. So it's a very, very complicated process and adding an unwillingness to compromise on anything to this is just, you know, disaster looking for someplace to happen. Mm -hmm. But I want to say that all of the attention was on this provision and how it was going to keep adoptees from getting their birth certificates. And it wasn't fair. And in fact, as I predicted, because I knew from years of helping adoptees and birth parents, what a low percentage it would be. And I had predicted it would be less than 1%. As it turns out, It is less than one-tenth of one percent of all birth parents registered on our registry who've requested anonymity. The one percent. On the other hand, you have a whole segment of adoptees, like the ones I just mentioned from Crittenden and Peoria. They aren't alone. Depending on the situations, kind of, you know, riskier situations, more complicated situations, We have, I think it's, I don't know what the numbers are, but we have a far higher percentage of adoptees whose original birth certificates were worthless. The information on them leads nowhere. Or the the birth certificate couldn't even be found. Is I don't know, 5% of those requesting their birth certificates, a huge number. The idea that prevails that we have to treat all adoptees equally. Everybody likes the idea of treat everybody equally. But the problem is that from the get-go, everyone did not have equal footing. Mm-hmm. Some adoptees on their birth certificates will find Nancy Jones. Well, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. There are going to be million Nancy Jones out there. Some adoptees are not even going to find an original birth certificate. Although we did subsequently pass a second law that allows adoptees who got no original birth certificate to recreate an original birth certificate 
based on agency files. So we have managed to help some of those adoptees get some of their information. But there are many, many adoptees who unfortunately will come up empty-handed, even with open records. While in Illinois, we know this information because we mandated in the law a keeping of the statistics. You know, this goes back to when I was talking about being at the Judiciary Committee back in 1997. You know, one group saying, oh, birth mothers don't want contact, and the other saying, you know, all birth mothers want contact. What are the real numbers? That has been the question all along, and the answer is, 95% of birth mothers want some form of contact. Never should have been this way. But to go back, I was as far as this level playing field, people are not going to have equality in the information they find on that birth certificate. They will not have equality in the accuracy of the information on that birth certificate. It's funny. At at one point, I had a a visit from some people at... um, the Department of Children and Family Services. They were, this was after the passage of the bill. And I, in fact, had had so many clients that I think that the first year after the bill was passed, I had more clients than the state intermediary program, which was, had, I don't know, 10 employees at the time and a million dollar contract. And I was just little old me. And yet at the end of the year, my numbers were superior to those of this much larger state program because I had so many people I had helped over the years who came back for help once the law passed and some so many people like you who found me yeah and And, I'm I'm just so thankful for White Oak and all that you've done for me and and so many others I'm deeply appreciative and and you you you, you know we could talk we could talk for at least another hour (laughs) I just want to finish that story. Okay, okay. <laughs> that I'm about to tell you. So anyway, they came and they were going through my files and trying to prove that I was not doing all the searches I said I was doing, which was, of course, false. And so to kind of test me, they, well, the social worker pulled out a file and said, okay, tell me about this file. I'm like, oh, and this was a pre-1940 file. No, pre-1945, I guess it was 1945. Anyway, this woman had come down from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan to Chicago to work during the war, had gotten involved with her boss, gotten pregnant, had the baby in Chicago, went back to Michigan as if nothing had ever happened. And now her birth son, I believe it was a male, came to me for, for assistance And what did I discover on this birth certificate? The birth mother had put her real surname, but had lied about her first name. She had put her real place of birth, but lied about her age. And of course, the task of the searcher is always to figure out, well, where is the accurate information here? And where are the lies? And... Fortunately, in this case, the surname was unusual enough that I was able to figure it out despite these lies and was able to reunite this adoptee with his birth family. The social worker doing the site inspection listened to this story and she said, should we even have somebody like you doing these searches? You're finding people who don't want to be found. 
which was a very illogical conclusion to come to. It's not because, and I think that's important for your listeners to know, it's not because a birth mother put the wrong name or the wrong age on that birth certificate. Do not deduce that they didn't want to be found. You know, just deduce that there was a whole lot of shame and they were embarrassed mm-hmm. or embarrassed for them. Right. It's not a sign of anything to find false information on a birth certificate. Well, I thank you for taking the time to, to break things down and, and help me. You're I'm still welcome. learning so much. And and so in closing, what what is there that you might want to say that I haven't asked you about? Or that you just want to reiterate to the adoption community, specifically adoptees? Uh, you know, I'd like because the Illinois bill was so everything we did in Illinois was so criticized, but there was a real logic to it. And although there are almost 20 states now that have open records, that means or, or some form of open records, that means there are 30 that don't. Mm-hmm. In those states, adoptees listening to this podcast, start little, start small, create an adoption registry. Yes, you'll be criticized. If criticism is, you know, what stops you, then you're not going to do very much in life. Right. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, don't let it stop you. Do do something small. Right. Find out who the enemy is, who the people that will help you get this, these laws, these very unfair laws changed are. And if it, you know, comes down to the wire and yes, like where, what state was it? Connecticut, I think they you know these bills where they will not compromise die premature deaths every single legislative session build on that build a coalition on that and let's have 50 states where all adoptees have access to at least some of their birth information amen and that's a good place for us to stop and hopefully you'll come back again because we could talk about some other things for sure so thank you again Melissa yes you are most welcome thank you for having me thank you Melissa for taking the time for a conversation with me I appreciate your immense support in so many ways through the years I like that you realized early on in the rockiness of finding your daughter that others needed help too especially adoptees. You stepped up in a big way within the community to lend your knowledge. It is commendable that even to this day, you still offer your services at the White Oak Foundation to adoptees in need. You are the first person I think of when an adoptee contacts me for help. You have a way about you that makes me know that your gift comes with no conditions. You only want to see people not be taken advantage of by a system badly in need of reform. It is a pleasure and a privilege to know you. I will forever be thankful for all that you have done for me and those I've sent your way. During the recording of this episode and prior to its release, Connecticut had not yet passed the bill, but it has passed. And so congratulations to Connecticut on the passing of the bill on granting adopted people the human and civil right 
to obtain the document that contains their original identity. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review, subscribe, give a rating, tell a friend or someone who you believe might find value in it. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word. Hashtag Adoptee Land.